Welcome to the 25th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we are going to be talking about our year in review. We'll also be answering some listener questions and giving away the one big secret if you want to make millions of dollars directing stuff in Hollywood. We've been teasing it for 25 episodes, and now you are going to learn the secret of financial success and creative happiness. It involves sending us $500 a month and then doing the same thing that we're doing with other people. <laughs> cool. Oren, what have you been working on lately? Well, I just got a new gig, which is pretty exciting. Probably the biggest gig I've had since I did that Lifetime movie. And it is a web series, 12 10-minute episodes that shoots all of February and... It's going to be big. I haven't done like a 20-day shoot for a long time, a couple of years. And so I'm really excited about it. It's a, an impossible shoot. It's like sci-fi action comedy, insane amount of stunts and prosthetics and makeup and sets and all sorts of things. And right now we're trying to figure out how to, how to do it. But the budget's there. Like we have a, a good amount of money and we have really cool, passionate people attached so i'm excited to tackle it so that's it and it's with new form media who you did shitty boyfriends with i did i did so i'm super excited you're working with some of my favorite producers that's great it's going to be fun i've heard a little bit about the project and i think it's going to be really awesome for you but i bet listeners at home are thinking fuck that sounds so great how do i get a job like that so walk us through how this thing happened so I made that Burn Trials video. You remember that, right? The Burning sure. Man Quiznos thing that I've talked about on this podcast a million times. Which I'll remind listeners, you were proud of, but weren't super excited for at the time. You were a little burnt out on it and like you had kind of lost the joie de vivre on that video, right? Yeah, it was a really difficult um, project because we were working with Fox, we were working with Quiznos, working with the agency, the production company, all these limitations, scheduling and... I thought that the concept didn't even make any sense. Like, why would Maze Runner and Burning Man be mixed together? Nobody that goes to Burning Man watches the Maze Runner movies and vice versa. Right. So, so you'd, lost, you'd lost confidence in the video a little bit, right? Yeah. And then, and then you post it, and weirdly, and it. it goes viral. Yes. More due to controversy than uh, moving hearts and minds, <laughs> but goes viral regardless, and it puts Quiznos on the map for a week or so. And they're, you know, they're a big brand. And so I call up my friend Ken, who wrote the script, and I said to him, dude, you know, it's kind of gone viral. Let's just start contacting anyone we know and say, hey, we have a video. It's a branded video. It's like a commercial. It went viral. We made it on a budget. We can do this for other brands. Like, feel free to pimp us, you know? <laughs> and Ken was like, well, who are we going to contact? And I said, I don't know, some, you know, Managers, and anyone, agents, friends, producers, anyone that you've ever talked to, just send an email and say, hey, I just made this video. It went viral. Here's some articles about it. You know, if there's you ever need work like this in the future, think of keep me in mind. And to make a really long story short, this somehow got to anonymous content. One of these emails who is a management company and production company and a manager there saw it and he saw some of the samples of my work that I'd sent along and he had clients that had just written this show for New Form Media, and they were looking for a director that could do action comedy. And he showed them my work, and they liked it. And so just I, I got a cold call out of the blue from Anonymous Content, a manager there saying, hey, you know, I really like your work, and I have clients that think you're right for a project of theirs. Do you want to meet? 
and I met and I met all the creators and it actually took them a long time to land on a director. I think that a lot of, a lot of voices that needed to be listened to, but in the end, not only did I get the gig, but I also got a new manager out of it. Now that guy at anonymous content is representing me. And in the past I've had some great managers that didn't quite get me. They didn't understand how YouTube plays into the world of film and TV but this guy really does, and he ended up negotiating my deal in a way that more than covers his commission. You know, I'm sure most people listening to our podcast know that managers and agents and lawyers get a percentage that usually adds up to 15% somehow, like 5% to a lawyer and 10% to a manager, however it breaks down. And so the idea is that they're getting you such better deals than you can get on your own that that 15% is less than how much more money they're getting you. So that actually happened this time. And, you know, I don't know. It's just been a really good experience. And I'm really excited about it, which is weird because usually I love to complain about everything. <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk to you more about the show. It's going to be the next, you know, uh, three months of your life minimum, bare minimum, right? So I'm sure we'll hear plenty more about it. Yeah. By the way, just to back up, the whole way we got into like bed with Fox isn't because I knew someone or I'd worked with someone or anything. We, Literally just made a parody of the first Maze Runner called The Waze Runner. We put it on YouTube and it went kind, you know, got like a million views or something. But we actually tweeted the video to James Dashner, who wrote the novel, and he retweeted it and the people at Fox saw it and they contacted us. So it wasn't like there was some easy access door. We literally just put something online, tried to send it to people we thought would care about it and we ended up, you know, getting involved with Fox through that. So it's really accessible to anyone to do something like that. Anyway, so Fox, because we did that thing with them, they have this event every year called the Fall Roadshow where they invite all the people that they've done like marketing partnerships with to show them all the new movies of 2016. So we went to this event. It was awesome. They made us like, you know, check our phones in at the door because they don't want anyone like tweeting or photographing or recording what you see on the screen. But it's this awesome presentation of like, you know, the new X-Men movie and the new event, uh, Avatar movie and the new Ice Age movie and all they showed us all these clips and the Assassin's Creed movie. And it's crazy. They showed us all the trailers and you can still see all like the strings and the blue screen and stuff because all these movies are still like in various stages of production. But they show it to us to see if we have any ideas of, of how to like come up with marketing partnerships with brands. And I don't know. It's cool. And the really interesting thing about that stuff, which I never really knew about before we did this, is I always wondered, like you see a Carl's Jr. commercial with Mystique from X-Men in it. Do you know, Matt, if Fox pays Carl's Jr. to plug their movie or if Carl's Jr. pays Fox to be able to use their intellectual property? I had always assumed that basically because Carl's Jr. was trading off the IP of Fox or Marvel, that they would be paying to use that credibility. Right. That makes sense. You can also see the other direction, of sure. course, being that, hey, you're advertising our movie. So the fact is what actually happens is it's a moneyless exchange. It's a real like kind of synergistic relationship between two different properties, which is kind of cool. So for that one in particular, when Mystique is eating you know, a hamburger for a Carl's Jr. commercial, the woman that you see playing Mystique, it's not Jennifer Lawrence, but it is actually Jennifer Lawrence's body double from the movie. The costume she's wearing of Mystique is provided by Fox and the visual effects to make Mystique transform is also, you know, hooked up by Fox through the people that actually did the visual effects on the movie. 
Carl's Jr. on their side does all the media buying. You know, it costs millions of dollars to put commercials on TV. So they're paying for that and they're letting Fox, you know, approve the commercials. And of course, they're plugging the movie. But at the end of the day, there isn't really any money exchange. It's just a partnership. And I thought it was really cool because, you know, I've done a lot of parody stuff, but I've always been afraid to talk to the people who own the intellectual property that we're parodying because I just don't want them to get involved. I'm afraid that they're going to shut us down. But what I've come to learn is there's like a way to do it that you're really helping each other. You know, we're putting commercials on TV. We're using your, you know, X-Men characters to plug our products, but we're also plugging your movie. And it was just, it was just kind of a cool event. And I learned a lot. That's the way uh, movies are made nowadays, huh? Yeah, but it's, (laughs) <laughs> not in a bad it's not like product placement like everyone I don't know I thought I think it's like kind of you know like a big idea behind multi-channel networks on YouTube and everything is that it's not you don't always have to pay each other to get things you can just promote each other and you can form collaborative teams that are building each other up and you know it's something we talk about on this show all the time so it's cool to see it even on a huge level like Carl's Jr. and you know Fox Studios are doing similar things but enough about me. What have you been working on lately? Well, the show that I've been working on for the last couple of weeks, I think I mentioned it in the last episode, um, the one that's becoming more and more of a thing. I, uh, I finished my first draft of the series outline and then also the, the pilot episode and character profiles and kind of all of the stuff that you need to explain to anyone what the show you're trying to make is going to be like, basically. How do you find, like, how do you make a list of what those things are? Or do you have some, or is there a rule about that? Yeah, you know, so the, it's it's interesting. There's not, um, it's, it's kind of a common frustration, I think, amongst writers and executives. There's no standardization for anything, you know? So it's really like, what are the needs of the show? What are the things you need to explain? What are the things that are extraordinary about your show or atypical? And then how do you present that in the most streamlined and, and efficient way? And fun way, frankly, right? So this document's like uh, clocking in. It'll probably be about 30, 40 pages by the time I'm done. So that's like, that's significant for executives. That's like a, you know, an afternoon worth of reading and noting, you know what I mean? So that means that it has to be, it has to feel like the show while you're reading it, you know, which is kind of part of the challenge of making what could be a dry plotty document sing you know right so is there do you have a general rule as to how many characters you're going to describe no i i basically if they are a character that has a name and an honest to goodness role in the film or in the show in a significant way i'll go ahead and describe them so i've outlined every single bit so i know all of the main characters i'm not into scene work yet so there might be some people that kind of come up and like bit players and things like that those people i'm not describing But my philosophy with these documents is always the same, whether it's a two-pager or like a, you know, a one-sheet, like some sort of pitch document or something that's more formal, proper writing, you know. It's always story and character first. So with a two-pager, I try to tease as much as I can for people to get what expositional elements they need out up top, like setting, vibe, that sort of thing. And then as my characters are slowly introduced through the document, you're learning more about their relationships to one another and what they want and and therefore what they do to get what they want, right? So it's a way of kind of slowly in each of the different elements telling your story, 
you know, so that the reader is always engaged and learning more and excited rather than kind of getting the cut and dry. Oh, this person's this old. They went to this school. They right. like this person, but they don't like that person. You know, that stuff can get really boring. Just like any reader, you know, people are going to glaze over and like check out. And that is not what I need on a document like this where I'm trying to sell the show. Right. Do you ever use visuals? I don't know. But that's because I think that I'm a stronger writer than I am a person that can find visuals. And because right now I'm wearing my writer hat, not my director hat. So when I'm moving into the director version of what I'm doing, I'll go ahead and draw storyboards and things like that and like pull visual references. But right now, I'm even though I'm the overall showrunner, I'm still writer first at this point. Cool. And so if anyone wants to see a few good samples, if you go to johnaugust.com, John August posts a lot of his show documents on there. And there's like really, they're really good references of what sections to include and how. And, you know, perhaps we'll post some documents too, if we ever get around to it. As soon as we're allowed to, Warren. As soon as we're allowed to. Well, cool. I can't wait to find out what happens with that. Is there a deadline or will we know something at any certain point? In time? Um, yeah, I think that we'll know. I don't know. I don't know when we'll know. <laughs> They have what's called like a reversion period. So that's how long they've paid to own the, the property for a certain amount of time after the reversion period is over. If they have not greenlit it, then I can take it out to marketplace again. I really hope that I'm just making it with, you know, everyone always hopes that they just make their show and that reversion is never an issue. But I should have my green light, you know, probably early next year, I, I think, realistically. you know, And if you get the, the green light, did you already negotiate like how much you're going to get paid for it? Or is that does that happen after they decide they want it? There's what's called a short-form and a long-form contract. So the short-form contract is basically for the work that I have been contracted to do that I've just described, basically, and kind of the basic terms for the company to make their decision. That's kind of generally speaking, I think, what they are. Long forms, you get into all of the details of like who owns merchandising rights and rights in perpetuity and uh, separated rights where you're talking about, you know, what if my show becomes, you know, an ice skate musical, you know, who mm, owns the rights to that? And, well, you know, the, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, the WGA has what's called separated rights and really protects that for all of their members. So the guy who wrote High School Musical at the time was just like a cheap you know, right, made for TV made, movie. Made for TV movie. So he, it wasn't a huge payday. And he w he didn't get any merchandising rights because that's typically not part of the WGA. He, he was a writer writer for hire. But right. the Ice Capades version of the High School Musical made him a multimillionaire. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Did he yeah. write that also? No. No, no, he didn't write it at all. But because it was all based off of characters that he created as the writer, he, he got to cash in. Oh, wow. My lawyer's always like, fighting for all that derivative work stuff and i'm like ah forget it just give me i just want the job stop fighting for me and yeah. then yeah and then stuff like that happens yeah so. the, the funny thing about lawyers because you know there are typically a handful of people who negotiate on your behalf lawyers are the only people who aren't going to make any money at all regardless of who gets what rights like they're really just in your corner the, a lawyer's job typically is just to be the smart, aggressive version of yourself. Yeah, yeah, and also to know, you know, they have other clients and to have an idea of what the precedents are and what is worth fighting for and what isn't. And just, you know, they protect you, obviously. Right, right. In many ways. Well, cool. Sounds very exciting. So 
Let's uh, go into some listener questions right now, huh? We have a couple of listener questions from Tumblr, actually, which is funny. That's a place that we never really shout out as a, a place to ask us questions. But here we go. First up, Anonymous asks, I'm a young comedy filmmaker that pays his bills with freelance editing while I direct stuff, one of which was a successful short. Because of said short, I got offered a year-long salaried position at a huge web company to write and direct sketches and web content. Awesome, right? except I don't really like the company or what they make, and I've had difficult experiences with them in the past. My gut says no, but it's hard to walk away from benefits and decent budgets to do what I love. Advice? Mm. Well, Anonymous, you know, it's so funny. When I read this question, I literally thought it was a guy that I knew because I, I had just gone to coffee with a friend of mine who was dealing with the exact same problem. And what did you tell your friend? Well, he liked the company a little bit more than it sounds like our Anonymous comedy filmmaker does. But, you know, I told him to follow his gut, but that I could tell that his gut was telling him he didn't want to take the job. Yeah, I think we I mean, we've talked about this many times before, but you have to figure out what jobs to take and what jobs not to take. And obviously the goal is eventually you only take the jobs that you're super excited about. But, you know, it's really hard to walk away from a salary. My like the artist in me, which is a very small part of me, <laughs> says don't take the job, you know, because it's going to be fun and you'll make money, but at the end of the day, it's not going, it's probably not going to build your career in the direction that you want to send it. You know, I, I don't know about you, Matt, but do you think about like, you know, you're married and you have to pay rent and all that stuff. Like do, how much do your bills play into whether you decide to take a big extended job like that or not? Well, you know, I think there's a ton of different aspects that are that kind of I have to weigh. Really, the question is, how much time are you taking away from the projects that you actually want to be doing? You know, that to me is the bigger issue. Because I had a job, you know, for years and years that I loved, but that kept me from directing full time. And, you know, I think about the the money all the time and salary and benefits, but I think that for me, at least, I've made more money directing than I did when I was a salaried, I had a salary job. And part of that is because, you know, directing is, um, you know, an in-demand kind of like premium job. You know, they're hard to get for sure. But if you're getting them, then, you know, you can make decent money. And the reason that you're getting a desk job is that they don't want to pay the guys like us on freelance basis because we're more expensive than just paying someone to be there you know, day in and day out and to shoot and cut and write and do, you know, they want you to do everything typically when it's one of those companies. And right. so they're you're trying also, to save money, you know? Yeah. You're also like working at their schedule. Like you might have to write and direct five things this week and nothing the next two weeks. And it's, it's hard from a creative process, you know, point of view to just like be able to turn it on and off all the time. That being said, like, you know, a lot of people we've had on the show, Paul Briganti, Matt Pollock, you and I, we've all had these types of jobs before, and they're really valuable if you are trying to build up your reel and your experience and your network. So maybe I, I, I'm changing my mind. <laughs> if you feel like, you know, what the work you'll make here, even just a little bit, can contribute to your work page on your website, then, you know, maybe it's worth taking. And I guess you could always quit if you don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I think really the question is, is are you the type of person who's down to quit? You know, I, I know as a bit of a people pleaser that 
if I take a job, I'm it's going to be pretty darn hard for me to walk away from it, which most of the time I really like about myself. But in cases where you're unhappy in a, a workplace and it's hard to leave, and especially if there's something where you're really valued there, but you're not getting out of it what you're putting into it. Yeah. You, know, you have to be realistic with yourself about whether or not you're the type of person to walk away from things like that. Yeah. I guess just even a little bit more context that is, would help me answer this question is, why were you offered this job? Was it because they saw your work and they thought it was awesome and they want you to do similar stuff to them? Or is it because your cousin knew a guy that was looking for a young director type person that has made some videos? Because if it's the latter, then it's probably a, a pretty big opportunity. If it's the former, you know, that they saw your work and they, that's how you got this offer, then probably means you can get other offers. <laughs> probably means yeah. it's not the only thing on the table. So, yeah. So in, in rereading it, he says that he's a filmmaker who basically already is making ends meet creatively as a freelance editor. Right. But then he had this breakout short, you know, like many right. directors that we've had oh, here yes. before. And then he gets offered the job and that he has worked with this company before and doesn't really like them. <laughs> right. So, to me, okay, don't take the job. Don't, don't take, take the, the job. job. Final, yeah. final answer. <laughs> final answer. But generally speaking, for people in this sort of situation, you know, there's a lot more factors going on. You know, but yeah, I think knowing when to leave is really the big, the big challenge for everyone in in this generation of workers, right? Like, you know, I think our parents maybe were raised with the mentality of like sticking with a company a little bit longer pension plans, 401ks, all that stuff is important. And it's scary, especially if you're raised outside of the entertainment community to not have those things. Mm -hmm. And who knows, you know, like when it comes time to retire, like I'll, I'll wish I had them for sure. But I think that there's greater financial opportunity if you make it directing than just staying at that salaried job day in and day out. Right. At some point you can negotiate your salary higher. You can get better. And if, if they don't want to pay you more, then you can probably find better opportunities. It's funny. My parents, like every single time I have a job that ends, they'll be like, Oh no, are you okay? Like, what are you going to do for money? What's like, how are you going to survive? And I'm like, this is every week this happens, mom. Like I always start jobs and stop jobs. That's just the nature of my work. Yeah. So. I, I've kind of only, I've started telling my parents just when I get a big job that's out of the ordinary. And otherwise I just kind of Say, hey, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm good. Right. One last story about this, then we'll move on to the next question. But I was just hanging out with the, the people that I'm pitching this TV show with. And they were like, what am I asking me what I'm up to? I said, you know, I have this TV show. I have the movie. I have this web series coming up. It's a big one. I'm doing these commercials on the side. And, and I have this podcast. And it's just a lot of stuff to keep in my brain at any one time. And so the guy, Carlo, that I'm working on the show with said to me, why don't you... Like, has it ever occurred to you that if you cut out some of those things, you'll be more successful on the ones that are left? And I said, yeah, of course, but I just don't know which ones are going to be successful. So I have to, like, keep pushing on all of them. You know, right. if we sold this TV show, yeah, I'd quit everything else right now. And he actually even asked me, he's like, well, what about the podcast? I mean, that seems like something that's pretty easy to quit. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's like the most fun part of all the things I do. It's so easy. We just talk about directing all day. Anyway. So don't worry, everyone. Yeah. This is for me. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, cool. Well, hopefully Anonymous is happy with that answer. Hopefully yeah. They don't, they don't declare some big hackathon against us. Yeah. And, and Anonymous, let us know how it went because you asked this question a little while ago and I bet you've already made your decision and I'd love to hear how it went. Yes. All right. Our next question is from Need a Handle. I think that's a play <laughs> on how he doesn't have a screen name. Right. Or is unstable. <laughs> Either way. All right. Here we go. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for putting out a great podcast. Uh, thanks, Need a Handle. Uh, question. When working with filmmakers on a volunteer basis, how do you actively encourage them to engage with the project to a professional standard? Just to make things more complicated, I'm working with a collective where I'm the new guy but also producing. I'm locked in with the talent I have. I need them to work, but if I, I lean too heavily on them, they'll go silent for days or weeks. Any advice is greatly appreciated. Keep up the good work. Well, unfortunately... <laughs> You're working with the wrong people, is my opinion. I mean, look, finding people that are as passionate as you about the filmmaking project is like one of the hardest steps that you have to overcome when you move to L.A. And it might take a, a bunch of tries. But if you're writing with someone and they are supposed to finish, you know, a draft of something by tomorrow and you email them and you say, hey, where's the draft? And they don't respond to you for five days. Like, you know, unless something crazy happened in their life, that type of working relationship just is not going to be beneficial to you at the end. So yeah, that, that, that is a warning sign. So this might be a little too late for Nita Handel, but I, and I think this is something I probably talked about on the podcast before, but my main philosophy when you're working with people who are unpaid financially, you know, you're not giving them cash, is that I always sit down with them and figure out what it is that they do need and want. The closer you you are to a favor, the less likely it is that you're going to get good work out of a person. And that includes, you know, some of my very best friends. You know, you, if you're not motivated to do a project, you're not going to do your best work necessarily. But but if you're smart about figuring out what it is they need in their career or their, their personal lives or whatever, and you can help them achieve that and frame it that way, then they'll be more excited about working for it, even if you can't pay them cash. So the easy example is like, you know, people who are working in a lower level position, like an assistant editor or a first assistant camera or an operator or something like that. People who are technically skilled, but want to make that next leap up into whatever their goal profession is. So from an assistant editor to an editor. That's the perfect sort of person you need on your team because they, if they know what's up, they know that you have to do work for free and you have to show that you can do things and it, they want to be a part of a community and a project that's of a higher caliber to prove that they can get those other bigger jobs. Those are the people that you really want to seek out and, and find to collaborate with. It's easier said than done, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Actually, Matt's answer is way better than mine. Go with that. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it does make me think, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, Nita Handel does say that he or she is locked in with these people. So maybe maybe my answer isn't so helpful. Something about this makes me wonder if maybe he's not based in a filmmaking community. It doesn't feel like there's that many other collaborators out there to grab hold of. You right. know, it can be a little scary when you feel like, oh, well, the best DP in town is cranky and won't respond to my emails if I continue to bug him about it. Right. He's the only person that owns a red in right. this entire village. Something that I find that is helpful sometimes is like trying to involve everyone creatively. If they're a PA that's driving the truck or if it's, you know, they're a grip or 
a makeup person or something like just saying, hey, you know, here's the idea. Here's what we're going to do. What do you what do you think? I'm just kind of like trying to make sure that everyone that's working on this thinks it's going to be good. You know, just that method of making people feel like their opinion matters beyond just the fact that they're a body there doing something for you, I think can be really helpful in terms of motivating people, you know, and actors too. Like I, I love calling up actors and saying, Hey, what do you think of the script? And what do you think of the dialogue? And what's your favorite part? And what's your least favorite part? You know, you, you are working on some writing and you've sent it out to some people and when they all read it and give you notes on it, they're instantly going to be more invested in your project and what happens with it and how it goes. And they'll ask you about it because you've asked them about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's something in just like respecting people as artists or, you know, their creative opinion that, that can help motivate people. And the other thing I've always believed in this is like paying someone anything. I think it's a pretty good gesture and it shows that you're willing to give something of your, especially if you're directing writing or producing you're like one of the people that's gonna has the most to gain by making a good product Mm -hmm. even if it's like hey look i know i'm asking you to work for like three days but i'm gonna give you 50 bucks you know and a gift certificate to starbucks like this is everything you know like just just letting people know that they're important to you and then also on set being super helpful with them not just like hanging out while a grip is carrying all the sandbags for free you know and you're just hanging out with the actors and flirting with people so I think there's a lot in attitude and people seeing how you are on set that will help motivate them. You know, same with like knowing everyone's name on set, all that stuff that we talk about all the time. So not a very clear answer, but it's just some ideas on how to get people excited about what you're working on, regardless of how much you're paying them. Yeah. And I think, you know, if things aren't going well, there's a sort of freedom in just saying, hey, you know what, I'm just going to learn everything I can. I remember the big project that we had in film school. I was doing production design. And I remember it was one of those nights where it was an overnight shoot, probably the first overnight I'd ever really had to do on a set. And people were freaking out with the amount of footage that we'd gotten. I hope it will go down as the least effective or productive day (laughs) of shooting I've ever been a part of. And I remember at a certain point just being like, well... Things aren't going to go great, so I'm just going to keep my eyes open and help people and see what's making things better and what's making things worse, and I'm going to apply that to my own filmmaking later on because, uh, you know, I think we got two shots off in a full 12-hour overnight, I think is what <laughs> what we ended up rolling on. Yeah, and these are, these are just like two basic dolly moves, but that's what film school is for, and so... This collective, while I bet it's probably much, much better than this sort of situation, maybe there are some things that you can learn about what you don't want to be doing and and the way that you want to be treated and how you don't want to treat people in your professional experience. I am like now rereading the question and seeing him mention, I'm assuming it's a him because he's saying guy, but he does say I'm the new guy, which is also a a thing that obviously complicates things because you don't want to be the new person like throwing the wrench in or telling everyone like you're doing it all wrong. It it can be so much better. And again, I think kind of the strategy with that is you ask people what they think or like show them two options. Like this is how we've been doing it, but I saw somebody else did it like this. What do you guys think about this way? There's a way to be the new guy and offer new ideas, but not bring it from a place of you know better but as a place to you're asking new questions and you want to get their their thoughts on it 
Cool. We'll need a handle. Yeah. Let us know how things go. Keep fighting the good fight. And keep sending us questions. We love rambling about the answers. <laughs> so, Matt, I thought just because this is our final episode of the year, might be nice to talk a little bit about what our goals are for the new year in terms of directing. What's What do you have on the roster? Is there... Is New Year's relevant to you as a director at all? Like, do you set out to do something in 2016, for instance? Yes, absolutely. The The New Year, I think um, because we're freelancers and because work tends to really... Hollywood shuts down in December, basically. So it's very hard to keep momentum going on outside projects. And so inevitably, I think it becomes a time for people to travel and develop new material. So I'm always trying to think of like what my big goals for the new year are going to be. And I actually, I keep a document that I update pretty regularly that has like lists of people I want to work with, specific goals, short-term goals, kind of all of that stuff going together. And so for this new year, I think um, I'm always trying to assess what is it that I've done enough of and what are the things I want to be doing and how do I position myself to do more of those? So Shitty Boyfriends was a really great experience for me, and it reminded me that I really love doing long-form episodic content and had been doing so much sketch lately that I wanted to shift gears. And so this next year is really going to be about doing proper scene work and character work, longer-form stuff. Not unlike the show that I'm working on right now, but, you know, who knows? All all sorts of things like that. What about you, Orn? Yeah, I mean... How do you attack the new year? Well, like you said... December is a weird time in Hollywood. It's really the time, especially like after mid-December to the second week in January, where you get to work on yourself as like a filmmaker. You know, that I think it's a time when a lot of people update their reels, update their websites, send out holiday cards, just, you know, giving people summaries of what they've done this year and what they're planning on doing next year. It's like a, it's a really good time to just work on like your self-promotion in a way. And, you know, we're going to do a whole episode on promotion based on a listener recommendation from Daniel Reiser. But it's a great time to do that. So I I'm, want to really redo all my stuff, my website and everything over these next few weeks. And I really, really, really want to make like a movie next year. It's my number one thing. And I want to be able to say no to more small jobs that take up like all of my creative juices and my time and energy and effort. I'm also having a baby in March, which is pretty exciting. And I'm trying to schedule that into my career in a way that I can spend a lot of time with the baby, but also keep things going momentum wise. So I don't know. It's exciting. I love like New Year's because I do tend to like do what you said, which is like just call these people that I feel like I haven't worked with enough. You know, a lot of times like friends that I just think are talented and just, I like to talk about big ideas and it just gets me excited to to look at the future and, and hope that we're all kind of become successful and famous and happy. I also recommend watching The Hudsucker Proxy. I love that movie. It, okay. it takes place over New Year's. So oh. it's great. Awesome. Well, I guess let's go into our final unpaid endorsements of 2015, the year that this podcast was founded. Unpaid endorsements. So, Oren, do you have an unpaid endorsement? I do. And actually, I thought of it while you were talking about some shooting difficulties you had. 
So Men's Journal wrote an article called Inside the Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio on the toughest movie he's ever made. And it is just fascinating. You know, it was directed by Alejandro Inaritu, who did Birdman. It was shot by Chivo, Emmanuel Lubetsky, who also shot Gravity. And it is just insane what they went through to make that movie. You know, they did all these like, they wanted to shoot all natural light. And so there was only a 20 minute window every day that they could shoot. They were shooting in literally negative 40 degree weather. Like Leonardo DiCaprio said at one point, he like couldn't open his eyes. His hands were like locked together. The cameras weren't working. And so they just decided to stop shooting because it was so cold. They had to take like a month off. And when they came back to the location to keep shooting, all the snow was gone. <laughs> so they had to literally scout the entire world to find a place that looked similar and had snow. And it's just really fascinating to see. You know, you read about filmmakers pushing themselves and actors and stuff, and it just really makes you think like, hmm, my, maybe I should push myself a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's also made me very excited to see this movie, The Revenant, which I had almost no interest in before I read this article. So check it out. Inside The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio on the toughest movie he's ever made. Sounds good. I will check it out for sure. I think uh, Emmanuel Lubezki is the best cinematographer right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he's the number one. Better than Matthew Labatique? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think he's the best. Tree of Life is it for me. Like, I think if you're Alfonso Cuaron and Terrence Malick's number one choice. Yeah, and Inaritu. He shot Birdman yeah. too, I think. Yeah, there you go. That's it. It's hard to complain. Hard to complain, for sure. But I bet he would make a really weird-looking Lifetime movie. I'd love to see it, though. <laughs> cool. All right, so for my unpaid endorsement, I've got two actually. So one relates to, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I've been writing a lot lately. And I think, I don't know about you, Oren, but whenever I'm in a situation where I'm kind of having to like really, really dive in and sink my teeth in on a project, I'd love to kind of revisit a handful of old reference materials or things that I've learned just to kind of brush up on my fundamentals. And that's kind of really what Unpaid Endorsements is about for us. You know, it's kind of like, what's the required reading for for each of us? And so I'd forgotten about it for a long time and then just did a little bit of Googling recently. So Dan Harmon did mm -hmm. a, a story tutorial for Channel 101 years and years ago. Yeah, so, so before Dan Harmon had created Community or... Uh, had written Hollywood movies or anything like that. He founded this thing in, in L.A. called Channel 101 that I'm sure people have heard of. That's where Lonely Island came out of, you know. Sarah like, Silverman Sarah was Sarah Silverman was, was a big part. Jack Black was a big part. You know, Randall Park was a, was a big guy. And, you know, I think it's a kind of a, a typical rite of passage for people to try and kind of make these weird web series. And so a ton of really talented people have come through it. It's a great community. But back when... I had a show there. Oh, did you? What was your show? It's called Lone Wolf. Oh, I don't think I know it. A, a guy that went around mysteriously beating people up. It's kind of like a loosely based on the Hulk and <laughs> cool. Bruce Banner. Great. <laughs> well, I'll have to check it out. Channel 101. Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. But so, so Oren, maybe you're familiar with these. He's got on the wiki for Channel 101 a story structured tutorial. And he's talked about it, I think, a lot, and you know, and more publicly in other places. I know he's got his own podcast and as a superstar. But I've always really loved these articles because they're really concise and fun to read. And really, it's a great reminder of just kind of your basic fundamentals. And he in particular talks about um, 
what he calls, I think, story circles, right? So yeah. he'll he'll break down like the monomyth, like the Campbellian story structure, right, into these eight different beats, and then kind of almost like on a color wheel or a clock, puts each mark you know, in a circle, basically. So it goes one, two, three is three is all the way at the right. Five is at the bottom, seven's at the far left and one's at the top. And what I love about the way that he does this is that all of those beats correspond with one another across from each other. So one and five are the opposite of each other. Three and seven, they're all, they're all opposites of each other. And so whenever you're like in a beat and you're trying to figure it out, it's nice to be like to look at the wheel and then therefore the converse story beat. And maybe that helps you helps guide what you're trying to write a little bit more. It's a yeah, little convoluted, no, but really boy, cool. super helpful, super helpful. Story structure 101, super basic shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's the first I especially like I think 106 is the one that I reread the most, but they're all really wonderful and like free. And, you know, we'll take you, you know, a I'm couple hours to get through. They're great. Right after this podcast. And then my other one is this season of Nathan for You just ended. And boy, it's the best show on TV. I love yeah, it so Nathan much. And Nathan Fielder just retweeted your tweet, right? Uh, he favorited my tweet. He favorited eh, my tweet. Not quite as good. Well, uh, happy new year, people. Yeah, happy new year. If you guys have filmmaking resolutions or goals that you want to share with us, I'd love to talk about them in the next episode. That would be great, right? So yeah. you can tweet us at Just Shoot It Pod. Uh, with your resolutions we'll talk about them i think that would be really fun uh in the meantime you can follow me at mr matt Dunlow. and me at smitey Pileg. do us a favor rate us on itunes it's a big big part of how we grow the show and you can visit us on just shoot it podcast.com for more information and community fun well thanks matt it's thanks. been a good been a good year so far doing this podcast yeah despite what everyone told me about you <laughs> the episode was edited by Eric Krapow and music was provided by Steve Combs over at the Free Music Archive. Take it away, Steve. Sayonara. Oh, no, I wasn't recording. Good one. Are you still recording? I am still recording. Okay. Uh, That's all you need, right? Yep. I think we're done. Boop. Do, does boop mean you hit stop? <laughs>